certain amount of mail, people simply go through. There's a book of all the publishers in the country. And since you now live in the day of computers and printers and things like that, it's nothing to put a database in of all of those and just send out a letter to every publisher in America. And uh, we probably get three or four letters a week from people asking us to publish their book. And uh, some of it is bizarre. Some of it is amusing. Uh, people uh, often write to us. We can tell they don't know who we are because they'll say, um, because we have a title, Soli Deo Gloria, they say, since you're a Spanish publisher. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, no, that's Latin. Or they think we're Jewish. We actually get phone calls. Is Saul there? Saul de Glory? Uh, no, no, no. There's nobody here named Saul. Can I speak to Gloria? No. There is no Gloria here. And uh, so we made up a form letter. After we got, uh, there was a PCUSA ruling elder who'd written us. He wanted us to publish his poetry that he had written as he drove along Pacific Coast Highway. And there was a woman who wanted us to publish her meditations after her miscarriage. Like there's a big market for that or something, you know. And uh, so we made up a form letter that uh, we will only accept your manuscript after you can prove that you've been dead for 300 years. <laughs> and that seems to stave off a lot of the nonsense. And uh, there's also another Don Kistler out there. I think he's dead now. But uh, he wrote a book called The Arithmetic of God. And it's one of those biblical numerology books. And, uh, but he says on the back he's a converted Jew living in Kansas City. But they'll still call the number in Pittsburgh and want to talk to me and say, you know, that book you wrote was so good. I said, I didn't write that book. Aren't you Don Kistler? Yes, but I'm not a converted Jew and I don't live in Kansas City. And they can't make that connection. So there's plenty of nuts out there that don't live in California. <laughs> yes, anybody who's odd is either moving to California or will join a Reformed church somewhere soon. We seem to have magnets for some of these. Well, I invite you to... Yes, sir. Fly over, <laughs> But I am most encouraged to see an in and out t shirt here this morning. <clears throat> I, uh, after I got out of seminary, I spent a year doing what I think every seminarian should do, and that's really work hard for a living. And, and I don't say that sarcastically at all. I, I worked more of my theology out the year I spent digging swimming pools than at any other time. And uh, I think in some congregations, people have a hard time um, really connecting with a guy who's never done anything but go to school. And, you know, having a seminary degree, the only thing it really proves is you've got a wife that can type. You know. <laughs> and the, the fellow that I worked for had been friends with the man who originally started the In-N-Out Burger chain in Monterey Park. And uh, he had helped build some of the early ones. And 
he got a special deal from this guy because they were lifelong friends. And so this man would never accept a job to dig a swimming pool that wasn't within 15 minutes drive of an In-N-Out burger. <laughs> and so that's what we had for breakfast and for lunch every day. He would buy lunch, but it was always double-doubles and fries and things like that. And uh, every time I come out, I first stop I make is to get a double-double with grilled onions and fries and a Diet Coke to balance out the calories. <laughs> and, uh, that's right. Uh, and uh, I wear the T-shirts back in Pittsburgh. And I was at a flea market last weekend, and there was another man wearing one. And we just pointed at each other. And it, it was kind of thing. And, and I, I really advertise for the chain back there. And people say, well, we don't have one back here. What's a close second? I said, no, no, there is no close second. There, they said, well, how do you describe it? I say, well, you don't mind that it's drooling down your face and you can feel your arteries closing up while you chew. <laughs> and that's how we're going to make it to 10.30. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah in the 32nd chapter. In the two sessions this morning, we're going to look at various aspects of the covenant and how they affect us in the terms of our theme of amazing grace, the favor of the King. And while you're turning, I, I want to ask you parents and grandparents and anyone who's here to spend a great deal of time today, this afternoon perhaps, praying for this evening, because last night we talked about what parents and pastors and ruling elders and churches can do towards the salvation of our children, and tonight we're going to speak directly to the young people. And so this sermon tonight is for them, and it will deal with the sins of children. And uh, even so-called covenant children need to hear the gospel. And so we're going to be doing that tonight, and I uh, would ask for your prayer. This is a brand new message I wrote just for this camp. And uh, I think it's one I'm going to use a lot uh, from now on. And so uh, I'm kind of anxious to see how it turns out myself. We're going to read in Jeremiah 32 from verse 26 through verse 42. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it, with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal, and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it even to this day, so I will remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, 
the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I did not command them, nor did it, come into, did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from, them, from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And there's a great deal in this passage. I, let me just give you a little historical context and then get to the part that I really want to focus our attention on. There had long been a struggle in Judah between the idolatrous worship of foreign gods and the worship of the Lord, the true God. Jeremiah had a message of salvation, but it was only on the other side of judgment. And that message is crystallized in the prophecy of the New Covenant of which this text is a part. Now, the New Covenant prophecy is built around the main ingredients of the Mosaic Covenant. At Sinai, God's desire to have a relationship with His chosen people and the requirement on them to return His love with their obedience. The New Covenant speaks of the empowerment of God's people to obey Him. Paul speaks of it this way, that God is in you, making you willing and able to do His good pleasure. That is the new covenant. It now comes with power. We could simplify the old and new covenants like this. In the old covenant, God said, if you will do this, then I will do that. But in the new covenant, which according to Hebrews is a better covenant, founded on better promises... God assumes all the responsibility. Where before, some of it was on us. Now He takes all the responsibility and He says, now I will do this and you will do that because of what I have done. Or, I will do and therefore you will be. The Old Covenant depended at least partially on us. The New Covenant depends entirely on God. And we get a preview of that in Genesis 17 where God makes His covenant with Abram, but before making or cutting the covenant, He puts Abram to sleep, 
And we should all be glad for that because if it had been up to Abram to keep the covenant, we would have no hope at all. Abram, man is a covenant breaker. God is a covenant maker. So God puts Abram to sleep and makes the covenant with himself. And here in this portion of Scripture, we have the unfolding of the new covenant. God had punished his people for their disobedience, but he now declares what he will do for them in spite of of their disobedience. In verses 33 to 35, the sins are specified. There is a stiff-necked departure from God, and then there is the greatest abomination of idolatry, setting up idols in the temple. Now, if we just looked at this generally, the people of God today aren't exempt from these, because the more you know of God and the more you know of His ways, the more stiff-necked we are in any departure from Him. Sins against knowledge are the greatest sins of all. And the heathen have no corner on the market of idolatry. We don't have little wooden idols in the temple, and we don't have little J. Grisham Machen bobblehead dolls on our dashboard. Well, maybe some of you do. I don't know. (laughs) The problem is it would sell. (laughs) We just disobey the first commandment over and over again by setting up all kinds of other idols. We have idols of pleasure, idols of relationship. I think one of the greatest idols that we are guilty of is making idols of marriage, having expectations for it it can never fulfill, thinking it will solve things. All of your sins will only be magnified when you have someone who's in your face reflecting everything that's wrong with you. We make idols of our expectations, idols of our children, idols of our recreations, idols of our retirement plans, idols of this, idols of that. Here's my retirement plan. I want to be like that preacher in Beaver Falls who preached and died. That's my retirement plan. That's really all I want. I have to tell you, this has nothing to do with the message, but as soon as I thought of Beaver I have a running stream of consciousness up here, and sometimes things come out and no extra charge or anything like that. But there was a congregational church there. Now, because of my being steeped in the Puritans, and many of them that I admire were congregationalists, and this was the first time that I had spoken in a congregational church. And so I thought I'd break the ice. I didn't know the state of the congregational church at the time. So I wanted to break the ice, and so I got up in front of them, and I said, you know, I just want you to know how pleased I am to be speaking in a congregational church because some of the greatest preachers I know are congregationalists. And I said, I admire men like Thomas Shepard and Jonathan Edwards and Solomon Stoddard and Jeremiah Burroughs and John Owen and Thomas Goodwin and men like that. And then I just kind of made the transition into the sermon and uh, preached. And afterwards, as I was walking to the back with their head man, He says, you know, we're without a pastor. If you could give me some phone numbers, I'll call these men and see if they're interested in candidating. (laughs) And like I said, you just can't make it up better than it is. (laughs) We've had people ask us for Richard Baxter's phone number. I had mentioned the story about James W. Alexander. We were at a... uh, In the very, very early stages of Soli Deo Gloria, we went to the... uh, an NAE, National Association of Evangelicals, it was in Columbus, Ohio. 
And at the time, we only had two books and a couple sets of tapes I'd done. And a man came up and asked me if we had Jonathan Edwards on tape doing Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, sometimes I'm just speechless. Not very often, but sometimes I'm just speechless. And again, I thought this guy was pulling my leg, and he sat there and waited for an answer. And so I decided to play along with a joke, so I turned around and said to my associate, I told you we should have brought some of those. And the guy said, well, you just blew a sail, and he walked off. So. Back to what's important. So here, after enumerating their sins and speaking of his wrath, God comes to speak of his restoration of his people in verses 37 to 42. He says, I drove them there in my anger and my wrath, but now I will bring them back and make them dwell in safety. Now again, whereas before the covenant was reduced to something so simple as do this and live, or if you will do this, then I will do that, it is significantly different now. Instead of here is what you must do, it has now become here is what you must be. Note verse 38. They shall be my people. Now that is what these rebellious people can expect, not because of their wickedness, but in spite of it. There hasn't been anything said of any change in them, but of a change in God's attitude towards them because of His covenant. And so one Puritan said it this way, We may sin so as to lose the sense of God's favor, but we will never sin so as to make God break His covenant. In fact, there are only two things said about these people, these people of God. The first is what they will be or do. The second is what they will not do. They will be My people, and they will not turn away from Me. Now, the remainder of this declaration regarding the covenant is all about what God will do. Verse 38, I will be their God. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. And notice the result. It is for their good and the good of their children after them. And then in verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, let's just do some hermeneutical work. That's not a man's name, hermeneutical his wife Nelda, that's the science of biblical interpretation. What does everlasting mean? Or do you need some prompting on this one? Is this a... It means that it lasts forever. Whew. So when does this covenant end? Never. And what is the essence of this everlasting covenant? That God will never turn away from His people, and He will never stop doing them good. Never. Ever. That's the first part, and it's very important indeed. But I also want you to notice the second part, what God is going to do. I will put the fear of Me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Now, right here, the issue of the security of the salvation of the people of God is settled once 
and forever. I mean, there are only two ways that salvation could be lost. One is if God pulled out, and the other is if you pulled out, right? I mean, there isn't any other way to do it. No man can take them out of my hands, so that's a settled issue. So either God has got to change his mind, or you've got to change your mind, and God says right here, he promises everlastingly, he covenants with his people that he will never turn away from them, and he will put his fear in their hearts so that they will never turn away from him. This is an everlasting covenant that promises everlasting life. And if this everlasting life could be lost, it couldn't be called everlasting, nor would God's covenant be everlasting, and God would be a liar. But one of the ways God describes Himself is this way. God is not a man that He should lie. You know, if someone were to say, what is the chief characteristic of man? If you were to ask God that question, He'd say this. He's a liar. But God isn't a man. And He doesn't lie. And He doesn't change His mind. That's, we just came out with a book of sermons by Jonathan Edwards that had never been published before, ever. Sixteen of them, and one of them was simply titled this, God Never Changes His Mind. And I am so glad. This idea of God's covenanting with Himself is seen even more clearly, if that's possible, in Ezekiel 36. And I'd like you to turn there with me as we read some verses from Ezekiel 36. If you're not sure where you are, just turn right. In Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22, let's just begin in verse 21 because there's an important statement there. God says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but... For my holy name's sake. Uh, just let me interrupt here for a moment. Sometimes when I'm teaching, and if I think I'm teaching on a particularly, uh, what may be a controversial issue, it is helpful sometimes to say, here is what I mean, and here is what I don't mean. Because oftentimes people will assume that you mean something based on what you've previously said as they work their logic or lack thereof out in your sermon. And so it's helpful for me to say, I mean this, I don't mean that. And God does the same thing here. He says, here's why I'm not doing it, and here's why I am doing it. I'm not doing it for your sake, I'm doing it for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. Now from verse 23 on, I want you to see all these I wills of this covenant. I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. In other words, your holy life is the best witness that you'll ever have. He says, that's how anybody is going to know that I am God. When you hallow me, when you treat me as holy, when you show me the kind of respect a holy God deserves, and when you live a holy life. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. 
then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Does God sound like he's got any doubt in his mind? And when he closes this in verse 32, he says, I'm not doing this for your sake. God never does anything for our sake. Everything God does, he does for himself, his glory, and the sake of his holy name. You and I reap the benefits, but God always has himself in mind in everything that he does. Because he could have no higher reason for anything. So when the catechism asks us, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The reason that is, is because that's the chief end of God. Why does God do anything that He does? To glorify Himself and to enjoy Himself forever. That's what He says in Revelation. He says, and for thy pleasure they are created. God created everything to give Him pleasure. God enjoys Himself immensely. That's why... I almost go into a catatonic state when I hear people well-intentioned but absolutely ill-informed say things like this, God created man because he was lonely. Please. First of all, what a slap in the face that is to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Second, what an insult it is to all the cherubim that God created to fly around him day and night telling him how holy and perfect he is. And let me just put it to you this way. If you were God and you were lonely, is this what you'd create? (laughs) I mean, really now. You know, I'm really lonely. My son and my, my spirit, just a little bored with them. And all these cherubim are getting kind of old. I think I'll create a bunch of people who never think I know what I'm doing. That'll fill in the gaps. And it also suggests some kind of a psychological deficiency in God who has no deficiencies on any level. Everything God does, He does for Himself. God will do all this for His name's sake. He will make us dwell safely. He will be our God. And back to Jeremiah, He will give us one heart and one way for our good and for the good of our children. He will make an everlasting covenant with us And He will put His fear in our hearts. No wonder God never slumbers nor sleeps. He's pretty busy. And does God do this begrudgingly? Not at all. Look at verse 41. I will rejoice over them to do them good. I won't ask for a show of hands, but ask yourself honestly this question. Have you ever thought that God was begrudging you His mercies? Like he was tired of hearing from you? Not you again. Same sin, huh? Why don't you get this fixed and then come back? Sometimes that's the way we see God. And I think it's to our detriment that we tend to do this. We get all hung up with the idea of God being our Father, and then we'll interpret God our Heavenly Father in terms of God our earthly Father. I struggled that when I was a kid. My, again, I told you my dad was a cop. 
And I was the second of five boys. You can analyze me all you want with that. And I remember my dad was very busy sometimes. I went out to talk to him, and he says, you know, you're always in the way. Get out of here. And some of you may have had a dad like that. And I spent the best part of my young adult life feeling like I was always in somebody's way and that God was tired of hearing from me. Now, that's, we were talking about this last night. That's one way you can be a bad example and lead your children into sin is by giving them false views about what God our Heavenly Father is like. But we ought not to define God by our earthly parents, but we ought to tell our earthly... Not we ought to tell our parents. We as parents ought to define what we should be like by what God is like. Again, God said to the wicked, you thought I was just like you. And does God do this begrudgingly? No. Not only will He rejoice, He doesn't do it half-heartedly. He says, I will assuredly or faithfully plant them in this land. Now look at this next phrase. With all my heart and with all my soul. Now again, we have to remember that whatever God is, He is infinitely so. Now just how intensely do you think something happens when, first of all, God does it faithfully, and then He does it with all of His heart and all of His soul? We can't even comprehend that. But God is saying that there isn't a single part of me that is not fully engaged in doing my people good and being good to them, and I rejoice to do it, and I do it to the fullest extent of which I am able. And that's another thing we have to expunge from our bad theology, is we talk about God having a good, a better, and a best. God can't operate on anything other than the maximum, optimum level. I remember when I was a sophomore at Azusa Pacific College and I got my first car for a hundred dollars. It was a nineteen sixty Corvair four door sedan, probably second ugliest only to an Edsel, with the engine in the back, and it was a oxidized gray. So my dad, I said, well, can, can we get a paint job for this? He said, paint job, my foot. He went down to the local auto parts store, spent $2 on a jar of rubbing compound, gave me a bunch of old rags, and he says, give yourself a paint job. And so I spent the whole summer rubbing out the old dead paint. You know that commercial where the guy's doing this and somebody drives by and he waves like this because that's all he's been doing all summer is making circles? That was me. I had biceps, you wouldn't believe, just from doing this for a whole time. Buff. Just from doing, I had a nice new paint job on that thing. The seats were torn and so I got some seat covers on them. Spent nineteen ninety nine at Munch Stereo for a four-track tape deck. And if you can remember that, you're pretty old. And, of course, in Southern California, when you get a car, you want a girl to ride in that car. There's no sense having a car, with an engine at least, if you're not going to get a girl. You can just sit and listen to the stereo. You don't need an engine. And so there was a girl across the street in the girl's dorm named Denise. And I asked her if she'd like a ride to church. And she said yes. And I couldn't be any better off 
in my car on the way to church. And so we went and sat together and came back, and I said, would you like to go back to church next week? And here was her answer. I've never forgotten it. Thank you, but I'm waiting for God's best. (laughs) And so I got a sign, put it on my forehead that said, Kitty Litter. (laughs) Because that's how I felt. I mean, I'm monkey vomit, I guess. You know, she's waiting for God's best. All I offered her was a ride to church. And I assured myself later she was only talking about my car. (laughs) But God doesn't have a good, a better, and a best. God only knows one way to do things, and that is at a God-like level. If God could do better and He didn't, He sinned against Himself. He will always do the best possible thing and He will do it for the best possible reason. And that's what He says here. I'm going to do it with all my heart and with all my soul. And now can you see how God can command us to love Him exactly the same way? Because He has already made that commitment to us. And so he says, and that's how I want to be loved in return. He's commanded us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he commands that because he's already made that commitment to us. There was a great line out of a John Wayne movie one time. He was getting the posse ready to go after some big bad bandit. I think the movie was called Big Jake or something like that. And I guess that only stands to reason. You know, you wouldn't go see a John Wayne movie called Little Al or something like that. (laughs) And he says to the posse, now I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. I know that's not a great John Wayne, but God is only asking us to love him totally because he's asked it of himself. He loves himself totally. He loves us totally. And now he asks for that in return. And what could be more fair than that? And there's no reservation on His part. I will rejoice over them to do them good. God loves to do good to His people. It gives Him great joy. That's what rejoice is. It gives Him great joy to do good to His people. He rejoices at every opportunity to do us good. I remind you of what He said in the Psalms, that we're the people in whom is all His delight. I can remember, uh, my daughter's 15 now, be 16 soon. And she's getting very excited because she's within 20 years of being able to date. (laughs) And I can remember probably eight years ago, we were out shopping for Christmas shopping for for her mother. And I'd already bought her all of her Christmas presents. And so this was shopping for mom, which means I had to put out more money for that. I remember my asking my dad one year, what do you want for Christmas? And he says, nothing. I haven't finished paying for what you bought me last year. (laughs) So I had a pocket full of cash so we could buy mom some Christmas presents. And so I said, all right, take me where you think mom would like some stuff. And so uh, we were in a mall. This is back in Pittsburgh. And uh, I think it was Lazarus or Kaufman, which is like the May Company and Robinsons and Nordstrom's and things like that. And... Michelle stops and she picks up this scarf and she goes, Oh, Dad, I would love this scarf. I said, Well, that's, that's interesting, Michelle, but we're here shopping for Mom, remember? Oh, yeah, 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 okay, put it down. So then she says, Let's go over to the makeup counter. 
and I was already suspicious that my eight-year-old wanted to look at makeup for mom, and so she picks up this $100 million an ounce stuff and says, you know, I would love this stuff. And I said, now wait a minute, Michelle, stop right there. I said, you know that we came here to shop for mom, right? Yeah. Well, why do you keep picking out things for you? She goes, Dad, I'm only doing this for you. I know how good it makes you feel to spend money on me. (laughs) And if you look up the word precocious in the dictionary, there's her picture. (laughs) The thing is, she's absolutely right. It does make me feel good to spend money on her. I love doing things for my daughter. Now, I'm not saying because that's how I am, therefore that's how God must be, but the Scripture is very clear that's exactly how God is. And we need to know how good it makes God feel to do good for us. We should know that He delights in it. But we have to be careful that we don't define good as what we like. We have to define good as what God does. It is good because God does it. We should never evaluate anything as right or wrong based on how people respond to it, right? I mean, when you, as a ruling elder or as a session, have to deal with church discipline, would you only do it to the people who thought it was right? Or to the people who thought you were right in doing it? Well, you'd never do it. Although I do have to say this. I I preached at a PCA church in Nashville, Tennessee here a few months ago. And they had a restoration service that morning. They had excommunicated a man for his recalcitrance and his stubbornness and his failure to repent. But they wouldn't let him go. They kept after him. And it worked. And the man came back and he repented in front of the congregation that morning. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place, including mine. And he thanked the session for loving him enough to do what was right and to do what was biblical and to recover his soul that was in danger of being lost. Not that he could lose his salvation, but that he was in danger of showing he'd never been saved in the first place. And then they had a line where everybody was hugging him and just telling him how glad they were that he was back. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. And he was actually thanking them for loving him enough to doing something that he didn't like. You see, we don't do things because people like them. We do them because God says to. And since God is a good God, if God does it, it's good, whether we like it or not. If we wanted to do this, we could spend the rest of our time in this camp having a testimony time where each of us was to say something that turned out to be good that we didn't think was good at the time because God knows what He's doing better than we do, right? God says it's good, we say it's not, who's right? That's a no-brainer. Now, the idea of God's everlasting covenant and His doing good to His people is told of in Isaiah 55. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. And notice that the essence of that covenant is mercy. And that the everlasting mercy is sure. It is faithful. God may not always, and sometimes it seems like He never does, act as soon as we would like. 
but He will always act as surely as we would like. They're never called the swift mercies of David. They're only called the sure mercies of David. And the other thing we need to remember is that these are all in Christ. Now, how certain is it that God will do good to His covenant people? Look at verse 42. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Now, it's interesting to me that he doesn't refer to his character. He doesn't do what an earthly dad would do by saying this, because I said so. I find it interesting back in that covenant with Abram, Abram asked a question that I think takes a lot of gall. When God makes a promise about the number of his seed, Abram says, yeah, how can I know? (laughs) Don't you find that a little arrogant? And wouldn't God have been justified? Excuse me, Abram? How can you what? How can you know? You mean the fact that I, Jehovah, said so is not enough for you? What is this? You're the first guy out of a million that want to see a fleece? What do I have to prove to you, Abram? I tell you what, Abram, forget it. I'm going to go find somebody else who has a little bit more faith in Jehovah God. And I think I'll bless him. Have a nice life, pal. Wouldn't God have been justified in doing that? But he doesn't. He says, you want proof? I'll show you proof. Go get some animals. And then they cut the covenant. And here, God doesn't refer to his character. And he doesn't just say, I said so. He doesn't turn into Yul Brenner, so let it be written, so let it be done. Instead, he refers to the certainty of events that have already taken place. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I'm promising. Now, how sure and certain is something that's already happened? This is what he refers to. He says, did that happen? Yes. That's how sure you can be that this is going to happen. That's a pretty safe thing, wouldn't you say? To say, as sure as that happened already, which you know, which you've seen, that's how sure you can be that this is going to happen. How certain is a past tense event? (laughs) It's pretty certain. And that is how certain God's people can be about Him not doing some of the good He's promised. But you can be that certain He'll do all of the good He's promised. How can we be so sure? Look back to the first part of that passage in verse 27. I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. And here comes a rhetorical question. Is there anything too hard for me? He's not waiting for an answer. There you have it. That's the end of the discussion. What else does God need to say? Actually, he could have stopped with the first statement, I'm the Lord. I made an interesting study one time when I went back through the book of Leviticus and looked at chapter after chapter after chapter where God gave his law. And the only reason he gave for us obeying his law was this, I am am the Lord. 
Before he gives the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord. And it's almost as if there's an inferred parenthetical, therefore. And chapter after chapter after chapter, he says, you shall do this, I am the Lord. You shall not do this, I am the Lord. And that is how he's like our earthly fathers. Here I was one of five boys and my mom spent a year in the hospital when I was young with hepatitis. I think she was just worn out after having five boys. I think she just...